Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. Welcome, Maria Moldar. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. It's such an honor. You're such a powerhouse. You have a beautiful, versatile, playful, soulful voice. And with at least 43 Uh albums behind you, you've traversed through so many genres, including, you know, folk, pop, Americana, blues, jazz, and gospel, and bluesiana, of all things, and more. So you're bringing your multimedia retrospective show way past midnight to the music room, Cape Cod in West Yarmouth on September 7th. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Pandora. We're looking forward to this little tour we're we're doing uh, because, believe it or not, 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of the release of Midnight at the Oasis. And I thought it was a good milestone to celebrate. So I put together this show, as you mentioned, and basically I just, uh, my, my, Louisiana band and I will be performing the songs live, but accompanied and illustrated by uh, stories about some of the wonderful people I've met and gotten to work with over the years and, uh, and wonderful photos and videos will be going on behind us. So I know multimedia retrospective sounds really fancy, but it's really going to be like a me sharing my musical scrapbook with my audience, and it's going to be lots of fun. You performed with Bob Dylan, Doc Watson, Taj Mahal, Dr. John, Aaron Nelville, Bonnie Raitt, and Stevie Wonder, Hoagy Carmichael, the list goes on and on. Well, well, I mean, I tell stories of working with Dr. John and um, uh, uh, Dylan figures since he was I I met him so early on I as with Taj you know we go way way back to like 1961 you know he's in there and there are some wonderful photos of him as well and um just oh I do songs that I did with Doc Watson I had the pleasure of of recording a beautiful duet with Hoagie Carmichael of all people and um, I tell a very touching story about that experience. So it's a little of everything because it starts with my early love of of uh, old-timey Appalachian music and on through bluegrass and jazz and swing and all the wonderful American uh, musical genres that, uh, you know, except rap, I want to uh, make sure every nobody's disappointed if I don't do any rap, but other than that, there'll be a little of everything. Just hope, hope all my old fans and some new ones will come out and, and uh, share this celebration with us. You grew up in Greenwich Village and your aunt helped introduce you to music your mom strongly disapproved of, like Hank Williams and Hank Snow and Hank Thompson. Is that so? Yes, absolutely. My mother, I'm, a, I'm of Italian-American extraction and my mother was very serious about uh, just exposing me to what she considered, you know, refined music. So she was always playing classical music in the house, which to a little kid sounds very ominous and gloomy, to tell the truth. And I didn't care for it much, but I'd go over to my Aunt Katie's house. That was my mother's younger sister. And she loved what she called cowboy music, which we now call the early country and Western from the 
40s and 50s. And so, and she'd play it on the radio. We lived in New York City in Greenwich Village, but she tuned in a little radio station from New Jersey that had a couple of hours of this country music every day. And I fell in love with Hank Williams and, like you said, Kitty Wells and Hank Thompson, lots of people named Hank, as it turned out, and uh, and just started singing. Like the first song I can remember singing at the age of five was It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels. My mother protested, but this wonderful music won out, and um, I've been singing and playing it ever since. She came around once she saw that it was very good for me and that I got recognized and appreciated for what for my interpretation of that kind of music, she came around and ended up being very proud of me. She became my biggest fan and, you know, was very proud of me. And and of all things, her favorite song that I did, of all the songs in my 43 album collection of of recordings, was Don't You Feel My Leg, which was a a song that was uh, written and recorded by a wonderful blues um, woman from New Orleans back in the 40s. And Dr. John turned me on to the tune when I was first recording in the 70s, and I recorded it, and uh, it became everybody's second most favorite tune I ever recorded. So, of course, I'm going to include that when we do our show. If you feel my leg, you might want to feel my thigh If you feel my thigh, you're gonna go too high So don't you feel my leg Tell us a little bit about growing up in Greenwich Village. Uh, you know, it just, from when I was a little, from before I was born, from the early 1900s, Greenwich Village was kind of a mecca, kind of the epicenter of all things hip, and and a mecca for artists, musicians, poets, sculptors, you know, writers, and so on. And so it had a very kind of loose, wonderful, creative energy flowing all through the through the community. And um, I was just blessed that uh, the the folk movement or the folk revival of the late fifties and early sixties just emerged right there at my doorstep in in the village. And that's why a gal like me growing up in New York City, you know, was blessed to be exposed to so many different kinds of American roots music. And there were just so many wonderful artists who were just, you know, exploring this music as well and learning their craft and coming into their own people like Richie Havens, Bob Dylan, John Sebastian, I mean, Taj Mahal, the list goes on and on. So it was a very exciting time full of just ripe, full of wonderful creative ideas, um, just people just sort of sharing creative ideas and, and sharing their musical discoveries with each other. So it was a blessed time, and that still informs everything I do today. I'm a huge fan of your blues vocals and your playful delivery in a lot of your songs. Can you say a few words about how you approach a character or a plot-driven song like Down Home Blues or It Ain't the Meat? The song tells me how to deliver it. 
know how I could describe <laughs> it. I just, you might put on a different suit of clothes or a different outfit, like you might put on a fancy outfit and it just might make you prance around and shake, you know, shake your tail feathers a little bit. And then maybe you might put on a real funky pair of jeans and a work shirt and that'd make you move a whole different way. I just somehow can slip totally into the vibe of the particular song I'm doing. I mean, I get inside the song and if I can't do that, and if the song can't get inside of me, conversely, then it's not a song I'm ever interested in doing. I don't pick songs that don't really resonate deep within me. If the song is good enough, the intensity of that particular emotion is going to kind of, to a certain extent, be built into the song. the motion that makes your mama wanna rock it ain't the meat it's the motion it's the movement that gives it the side well i had a man he was awful thin not much to him but bones and skin but one thing about him i could understand he wraps all around me like a rubber band it ain't the meat it's the motion that makes your mama wanna rock it ain't the meat it's the motion it's the movement that gives it the sock what are your thoughts on your time with the jim queskin jug band it was a very a time i cherish dearly i uh met jim queskin and the than the guys that were in that band, which included a certain handsome blue-eyed singer and washboard player named Jeff Muldar. And um, in 63, and I came, I, Jeff and I fell in love, and he invited me to come up and be with him in Cambridge, Mass. So I did that, and the Queskin Band was already quite popular on the folk scene. I had been in a band called the Even Dozen Jug Band with John Sebastian and David Grisman and some others that went on to to greater fame and but but the point is that um that, so after a few months they asked me to join when one of their members left and I spent nine years making wonderful music with them jug band music itself is a form of a combination of rural blues and early ragtime and jazz music from the 1920s and it's you know, played on a variety of homemade instruments, i.e. there's a, you blow into a jug instead of having a great big upright bass, and that makes the uh, bass notes, and you play washboard and different percussion instruments that are, you know, sometimes nothing more than pots and pans, instead of having a big, you know, a big full-on drum set. And then, you know, it's augmented by fiddles, guitars, banjos, mandolins and so forth and um, I played a mean kazoo by the way and also played fiddle and tambourine um, in that band but um, we had our 50th anniversary oh about 10 years ago and we toured all over over the states and the New England well mostly in the New England and California areas and then did a big tour of Japan because believe it or not at the time we did the tour there were over a hundred 
playing, you know, ongoing jug band, gigging jug bands in Japan. And um, our tour ended with a big jug band festival where all these Japanese jug bands were playing. And of course, we were the headliners and they, they just loved us. And it was, it, it, the thing about jug band music is it's so much fun. And so, you know, even 50 years after we were doing it, which was already 40 years after it was invented, uh, people still want to hear it. And I'm very close to Jim Queskin. He's still alive and living in the in the Boston area. And uh, we just collaborated on a, an album a little while back and uh, that's coming out soon. And he's still out there performing. So um, jug band music is alive and well. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Maria Mozart, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Pandora. And I hope you tell all the folks in the Cape Cod area that we'll be at the Music Room in West Yarmouth, September 7th. And yeah. we hope every music-loving fans will come out and share a few memories and a lot of great tunes with us. So thank you so much. Thank you, dear. See you at the show. For tickets, folks can go to musicroomcapecodtickets.com. My second guest today is Lydia Welker of the Appalachian Prison Book Project. She is a volunteer digital communications coordinator for APBP. It's a small grassroots nonprofit that sends free books and provides educational opportunities to people incarcerated in prisons and in jails in Appalachia. Lydia Welker is also a technical writer and editor based in the Midwest with a passion for the life-changing power of books and education. Welcome, Lydia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. First off, I'd love for you to give us a little bit of history, some context for your prison book project. Since it was founded in 2004, you've mailed over 65,000 books to people behind bars. There are there's a very large network of organizations like ours that are dedicated to sending books to people incarcerated in prisons and jails across the country. So no matter what state you're from or listening from or where people you know are incarcerated, there is a prison book program out there trying its very best to send books to people incarcerated in that state. The reason organizations like ours exist is that it's extremely difficult to get reading material, educational opportunities, books themselves to people who are incarcerated. Prisons, jails, the government on a state level and a federal level make it really difficult. There are a lot of restrictions and regulations and rules that change on a whim and are different from facility to facility that you have to navigate in order to get books to people in prison. And organizations like ours have practice navigating these rules. And so we're very experienced with sending books to people incarcerated in the states we serve. And that's why supporting organizations like APVP or like our other, the projects we work in solidarity with is a great way to support reading and education 
for folks behind bars. And the reason we're doing this work, to speak for us at APBP at least, is that we believe education and access to books are human rights. We also know that literature and education are essential to creating a culture that doesn't rely on cages to solve societal problems. So that's a little bit about the history of prison book programs in the country. So tell us more about Appalachian Prison Book Project's mission. Of course. So um, the Appalachian Prison Book Project, we are an all-volunteer grassroots nonprofit organization based in Morgantown, West Virginia, that sends free books and provides educational opportunities to people incarcerated in Appalachia. So we serve a six-state region. That's Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, and Maryland. And since we were founded, we've mailed over uh, 65,000 books now, hosted book clubs with more than 100 imprisoned people, and helped 30 incarcerated students earn college credit. Our mission is to challenge mass incarceration through books, education, and community engagement. Mass incarceration divides our society into these two worlds, people in prison and jail and people not in prison and jail, which is known in the justice space as people on the inside and people on the outside. And so our challenge is to fight this this division through books and education. So for people on the inside, um, we're mailing books, we're creating prison book clubs and helping students take college classes as part of this understanding that literature transforms people's lives, it transforms our society. And then for people on the outside, people like you and me, um, volunteers, donors, responding to letters from people in prison and learning about the prison experience through those letters prepares our volunteers to join these larger national conversations about mass incarceration while carrying the lived experiences of people who are most harmed by it. A little history. So um, in 2004, Dr. Katie Ryan in the English department at West Virginia University taught a course on the literature of imprisonment. The students in that course, along with Dr. Ryan and community members, collected books and raised money to send those books to people in prison. We sent our first book in 2006, and we became a 501c3 nonprofit in 2012. And we've been serving people in Appalachian prisons and jails ever since. Yeah, so I'd love for you to talk about morale building and the importance of not getting disconnected from a sense of community. Oh, yes. Prison, jail is dehumanizing, and it's designed to be dehumanizing. And one of the most important parts about sending books to individuals who are incarcerated about our volunteers reading letters written by these folks who are in prison is humanizing. It's creating this bridge between those two worlds that I was talking about to um, humanize people who are behind bars right now. The United States locks up more people than any other nation. We have the highest domesticated incarceration rate in the world. 1.9 million people are locked up right now in the U.S. And so as you say, it's this concept of humanization, of hope, of 
reminding people on the inside that there are people on the outside who care about them and their experiences and that they deserve to live. They deserve to have access to things they like to read. They deserve to learn about the things they want to learn about. All connected very much so. Many communities are especially harmed and broken in terms of the family unit by mass incarceration, right? So bridging a sense of community between folks inside and folks on the outside must in in some way support and help, I don't know, at least take steps to heal that uh, division. Yes, I'm so glad you brought this up. I think about this a lot personally, and our organization is also thinking about this, but um, that number, that 1.9 million people, Um, I always think about how that's just the very tip of that iceberg because every person locked up, you know, they have, there's a gap they're leaving behind in their family, their friends, their community, the um, state, the region, everything. And so there's this, um, the tendrils of mass incarceration reach much further than the individual who is behind bars. Yes, we, one of my responsibilities is to, um, manage the email account, social media accounts, things like that. And so I am often getting people writing to us on behalf of their loved ones, asking for us to send them books. And that's always a powerful message for me to get, you know, someone is advocating for someone on the inside. And that's really important to me. And one way we are serving both our community and then the incarcerated folks that we're working with. For those whose lives have not been personally touched by the system of mass incarceration, we need to develop more empathy and understanding. Yes, I absolutely agree. And that is one of the things we are doing through having our volunteers, you know, physically in our space, reading letters handwritten by people in prison. It's very prevalent in media from the time we're young until we die that Um, this story about what prison is and what people who are inside prisons deserve. And so um, reading letters from incarcerated people and sending them a book is one way to fight against what we've been told the whole time. Um, Because those letters don't just contain requests for books, they are writing about what life is like inside prison. And then to people who aren't near a program like ours or they can't kind of get their hands on a letter. I always encourage people to start by listening to incarcerated people now. um, The Prison Journalism Project has an entire database of essays, poetry, letters written by incarcerated people about their experiences. And um, the Marshall Project will publish articles written by people in prison. And there are plenty of people who were incarcerated and are now dedicating their life to telling these stories like Dwayne Betts and his uh, memoir and Carrie Blankinger and her memoir. And so all of these kind of come together to humanize the people who are most affected by incarceration. Can you talk about the book clubs? We were facilitating three book clubs at a federal prison in West Virginia. This was pre-pandemic. And so unfortunately, like so much of our society, those book clubs stopped in 2020 and we haven't been allowed to start them again. Those book clubs were incredible. We had um, two in two different men's prisons and then one in a women's prison. And um, our goal was to bring books in, talk with people and um, 
so many of the people who participated in those book clubs were leading discussions and then creating incredible pieces of art they were writing. And so we were able to collect a lot of their writing and art and put it into a publication so people can access that on our website and see this creative work by these um, book club members. It's really incredible. And since the pandemic, um, we have um, supported a new initiative at West Virginia U University. It's called the Higher Education in Prison Initiative, which is currently working on an associate's degree program at a federal prison in Pennsylvania. And we have a couple book clubs going that we're supporting through that initiative. So more book clubs are happening. Um, we did have that long period of blankness because of um, prison and jail restrictions due to the pandemic, but now we're in we're now we're inside again, trying to build these opportunities for people to come together and talk about literature. So tell us about the process of getting books into prisons. How can folks get involved? We get about 200 letters a week from people who are incarcerated in the six states we serve asking for books. Sometimes people ask for titles, genres, they want to learn about something, whatever it is. And what our volunteers do is read those letters and we look through our shelves of donated books and then we send them off to those individuals. People anywhere can support us or support your local prison book program by donating books that we need and um, donating funds that we can use to cover the postage it takes to mail books to people in prison. The most requested book by people in prison and jail across the country, all of the prison book programs, there's one book that's most requested, and that is the paperback dictionary, followed closely by reference books like up-to-date world almanacs, thesauruses, legal dictionaries, medical dictionaries, things like those. We get a lot of requests for educational books, how-to books, we call them, you know, how to start a business, how to knit a scarf, how to exercise, how to construct a house. We get a lot of requests for foreign language learning materials, people wanting to learn Spanish, people wanting to learn French, American Sign Language. Uh, we get requests for books by Black authors, LGBTQ authors, Native authors, and then a lot of popular fiction genres like Westerns, mysteries, sci-fi, fantasy. The federal government has its own rules about what books can be sent to people in prison. Each state has its own rules that apply to state prisons. Each county or city has its own rules for their jails, and each warden running those different facilities has their own rules. And then sometimes it comes down to the person working in the mailroom at the time the book comes through on whether it will be accepted or not. That's the reason, again, why programs like ours exist, because we keep careful track about when books are rejected and when they aren't. We're in contact with prisons to make sure we're clear on the rules for their facility. And we're constantly working against this large system to try to provide people with the books they want to read. People write us back and they tell us about um, what they thought about the book. But then one of my favorite things about all of this is hearing about the journey a book takes after we send it to someone. When we mail a book to someone on the inside, they might keep it for themselves, which is understandable. We all have books we keep to ourselves. But we'll also hear from people about how they read the book, they loved it, and then they shared it with people in their cell, on their block. They shared it with everyone they could. They 
donated it to their prison library if it existed to continue to like share the journey of that book, to share its inspirational message, to share its entertainment, whatever it may be, to everyone that they could. And I love hearing those stories about how much the book means to the people who are receiving it. Books matter. They bring joy, they bring hope, they bring information, they change minds, they change lives, they start conversations, they build connections, they support community, you know. Books are powerful, and so people deserve access to them. Thank you so much, Lydia Welker, Volunteer Digital Communications Coordinator of the Appalachian Prison Book Project. Thank you so much for having me. For a list of books to prisons programs across the U.S., go to prisonbookprogram.org slash prisonbooknetwork. For more information about the Appalachian Prison Book Project, go to appalachianprisonbookproject.org, and you can also find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at AppalachianPBP. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcast at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. 